Welcome to episode 234 of Live Happy Now. I'm your host, Paula Phelps, and today we're going to take you on a whirlwind tour of happiness around the globe. Our guest today is Helen Russell, who took an interesting path to studying happiness. When she moved to Denmark in 2012, she began studying why the country was ranked so high on the happiness scale. That led her to write the book, The Year of Living Danishly, and now she's back with a second book, The Atlas of Happiness, The Global Secrets of How to Be Happy. This new book looks at happiness practices around the world, so she's here to talk about how happiness differs from one country to the next, what we can learn from other countries, and in what ways we're all the same in our pursuit of happiness. Helen, welcome to Live Happy Now. Thank you so much for having me. It's obviously a natural fit for Live Happy Now to have someone who wrote the Atlas of Happiness. I wanted to start by finding out where you started studying happiness. Well, yes, it's an interesting one. This wasn't my field at all. I was actually working in fashion and for glossy women's magazines. I lived and worked for 12 years in London and I had no intention of leaving. We lived the very much typical London life until out of the blue, one wet Wednesday, my husband came home and told me he'd been offered his dream job working for Lego in Denmark. And oh my gosh. Exactly. As many of your listeners will know, Denmark has many times been voted the happiest country in the world. And this was back in 2012, where it really was, you know, without doubt in survey after survey coming up as the happiest country in the world. And I became fascinated by this. We'd been trying for a baby for as long as either of us could remember. We'd had years of fertility treatment, but we were always so tired and stressed that it never quite happened. And actually, once this offer, this other life possibility was dangled in front of us, we began to realize that actually we were pretty burnt out. And so there was this idea, well, actually, what if we did swap everything? What if we did put away life as we knew it and try something new in what was supposedly the happiest country in the world? And so I said, I'd give it a year. I'd give it 12 months investigating the Danish happiness phenomenon firsthand, looking at every area of Danish living to see what Danes did differently. So we moved. So we left our London life, moved to Denmark, and it went well. Spoiler alert. So we have a family <laughs> now, which is amazing. And it just, once my first book, The Year of Living Danishly, came out, I became a bestseller in many countries around the world. And I began to get messages from readers asking me what I knew about their countries and sharing information. And I became fascinated by this. So this really kicked off this whole area of research for me. Well, and it's interesting because that is such a leap from the fashion world Absolutely. to get into happiness. And also what's interesting is the timing, because it was 2011 when the United Nations you know, created the International Day of Happiness. And that's, I think, when a lot of our attention started to turn toward that. So for you to do this in 2012, I think your timing was just absolutely a gift and such an incredible sense of, okay, people really want to know about this. For that first book, how did you start writing that and how did you find the things that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, well, I mean, I'd like to take credit for having some amazing foresight, but really I haven't. And it was a fortunate coincidence and, and coming together. And really, I guess I, like many people, was just at the end of my tether. I was burnt out. So it wasn't so much me thinking, oh, you know, happiness is going to be big. It was more of a personal 
push uh, rather than a, a draw thinking something has to change. And so fortunately, I am not naturally gregarious by nature, but as a journalist and having worked as a journalist for 15 years, I had that training and I was able to approach it quite analytically. So whereas moving to a new country or any new place can feel quite isolating, it can be very scary. I didn't know the language. I had no job. I had no friends, no family. I had nothing. But because I had set myself this task, because I knew it was going to be a project and a fact-finding mission, I made myself get out there. And I, you know, I approached politicians and sociologists and economists and scientists and psychologists. And I started, I was far braver than I normally am. And I'm surprised looking back <laughs> at it, but I, I got in touch with a few foreign office desks in the UK. So I ended up being the Scandinavian correspondent for The Guardian and writing a column about my experiences in Denmark for The Telegraph, which again was miles, worlds apart from my reporting from the front row of New York Fashion Week. And I felt a lot of imposter syndrome thinking, how are they letting me do this? But it was great. <laughs> and so that sort of boosted my confidence because I felt like, oh, you know, I can apply the journalistic training I've had and put it in a more, I guess, look at it more of a macro level and then also on a micro level, what Danish culture did differently and what the infrastructure here was like. So, yeah, it was it was just like that and being quite tenacious and approaching politicians and not taking no for an answer and being far braver than I thought I could be. And as you're able to do that, one thing I think that's so great about being able to be a writer is that you're researching, you're learning about things. But as you're conveying those to other people, you really do absorb it. Yes. Yeah. It would sort of be impossible not to, I think, when you're living here as well, because it wasn't just being in the field. And at the start, we thought we would just be here for a year. So I thought, well, I'll give it everything and I'll really try and find this out. And also for our own sanity, we had no friends here. We went from living in London and having loads of friends and family, but no time to spend with them, to having all of the time in the world, because Danes work pretty short hours. They only work, the average Dane works 33 hours a week. So oh we God. had all of this time suddenly <laughs> and nobody to spend it with. So I did have to be really proactive and I had to fill my social calendar somehow. So it all became research really. So yeah, I was very much living it as well as working it. And why do you think it is important for all of us to be able to understand happiness and what causes it and how we can get a hold of it? I think, I mean, many of us, I grew up in the 1980s and 90s, and I grew up with Margaret Thatcher's government in the UK. And there was this idea that money was the goal. And it just seemed to me and to many others who I speak to that that wasn't cutting it anymore, that status and power and all of the things that we'd worked towards, I'd, you know, I'd got this big shiny job that I thought I'd always wanted. And when I got there, I wasn't any happier. I was just busier. So there was a feeling that something had to give. And, and I wasn't sure that I found it really difficult to picture my life without having a family. And that was a source of great sadness. And so I thought, well, I have to do something different. I have to try and give it my best shot and try to see if there's another way that I can live. So I think happiness is important because it's it's a truer way to live, but it's also not the exclusion of bad feelings. You know, we'll still get sad. The negative emotions are still there. It's just trying to be more open to them and trying to be in touch with our emotions a bit more. And writing The Atlas of Happiness, for me, one of the big inspirations there was this idea of the fact that different cultures view happiness differently. And in these very divided and nationalistic times, that felt really important to try and understand how different nations view happiness, because it can impact on how we interact with each other moving forward. So 
I really wanted to get an idea that, you know, the American idea of happiness and the UK idea of happiness isn't the same as, say, the Spanish idea or the Icelandic idea. And it felt quite important to broaden that out, really, to get an understanding of what was going on all around the world. And are we more different in our happiness or the same, did you find, worldwide? That's a great question. There are some really big differences. Perhaps I'll start with the similarities. I think whichever country you're looking at, the universals tend to be spending quality time with the people you care about, which seems like a no-brainer, but certainly in the UK, and I and I feel like from my research, the US as well, that's something that many of us uh, sacrifice. So spending quality time with friends and family is one of the key indicators for happiness worldwide, as is spending time out of doors, especially exercising out of doors. And these are all things that go by the wayside in pursuit of our careers or in the flow of a busy life. So it felt useful to get a reminder that those are big, important things that are non-negotiable that many of us know intellectually, but don't always put into practice. But there are also huge differences. So There's been a lot of research into Eastern ideas of happiness and Western ideas of happiness. And for example, there have been comparisons of the US and Japan. And that's quite a good comparison because they're both wealthy countries with, you know, the similar standard of living, but different values. And so in the US, for example, researchers have found that high arousal states are valued. So being happy is this sort of almost this Disneyland idea of its enthusiasm and its excitement and its its adrenaline. Whereas in many Eastern countries, high arousal states are not necessary for happiness. It can be around contentment. It can be around pleasure. You can hold feeling unhappy or uncomfortable in your mind at the same time as being happy about other things. So that feels quite important culturally to bear in mind and to remember as we travel the world, as we interact with people from different cultures. So yeah, big differences as well. Were there any themes, any common themes that you found that, you know, just beyond what makes us happy, but maybe how we react with happiness, what kind of benefits it has for us? The benefits of happiness or the different ways that different cultures tend to approach it? The benefits of it. Like, is it a universal, we're approaching it differently, but is it a universal benefit? Like, do we get the same kind of rewards from happiness? Well, interestingly, there have been a lot of studies and I have I have written about them and fallen prey to them before without going doing much further research until recently that we read things that happier people are healthier, they're more successful. And this is true, all things being equal. But actually, being unhappy only makes us unwell if we're very scared of being unhappy, if that makes sense. So if oh, we really? are more yeah, so if we're more comfortable with you know, feeling down some days or feeling sad because sad things happen, like people die and we break up with people and we suffer losses. If we accept that as part of the circle of life, as many Eastern countries do, researchers actually from Stanford have found that we, that doesn't tend to make us unwell. This is a huge generalization, but the gist is there. Whereas studies from the US will show that people who are experiencing negative emotions who don't report being happy tend to report then that they are suffering physical discomfort and ailments as a consequence. So I found that fascinating, this idea that, you know, being happy is great, but on the days that we aren't happy, we kind of have to be okay with that because if we're not okay with it, it's going to make us more unhappy. Well, that's really interesting because I had read just last week, I read a study about stress and emergency responders. And 
how if they don't see their jobs as stressful, if they see that this is what I'm here to do, they don't have the same stress effects as those who say, I have a very stressful job because I have to do this. That's so fascinating. It's yes. Really the, exactly same the same mindset. Yes. Yeah. Which is a big eye opener. And I think stress is a funny one. You know, life includes stress. Naturally, there will be stress associated with many things. But, you know, since for for the last 30 years or so, we've been encouraged to think of it as a a really terrible thing. And of course, excessive stress isn't going to be great for us. But some stress will go with our normal life. And we can do things that have been proven by scientists and have been proven in countries around the world to help, like exercise, like developing resilience. But we also have to do a bit of acceptance there as well. That's a really thoughtful. That's wonderful insight. One of the things that struck me, you cover 33 countries in this book. So when you call it an atlas, that's not a joke. <laughs> <laughs> So how did you go about finding and researching all these different practices? Well, so after writing The Year of Living Danishly, it was published in 20 countries worldwide. And people were getting in touch, as I said, and readers I have found to be incredibly open and generous with their time and information and sharing of knowledge, which is fascinating and wonderful. And then I've also traveled a fair bit for my work my previous in my previous incarnation in glossy life and then in my current incarnation as a Scandinavia correspondent and just a, a person who's interested in the world around them. So I've traveled a fair bit and I get to travel for work sometimes when books are published in different countries. And then I also live in a strange international community in Denmark in that it really is an international community where people from all over get together and talk. And there are a few asylum centers near where I live. So I got to speak to people from Syria and people who've had very different life experiences to me who have all ended up in the same place and so are willing to share their experiences because they now feel like they're in a safe place, for example. So that became really interesting and I wanted it to be, it's not a collection of Wikipedia entries, I wanted it to be the testimonies <laughs> of real people like you and me doing normal jobs. So I spoke to waiters and HR managers and architects and nurses and doctors and teachers and then really pulled together the people whose stories I found most interesting and uh, the people who I felt had something really fascinating and useful to say about the unique cultural concept of their country. Because if you speak to anyone from any country, they will have their own personal things that make them happier. But I wanted to really delve into what are the cultural things that unite people there. So yes, that was the main gist of how I went about it. And then I'm still learning. I recently wrote an extra chapter about Poland, and I'm going to Poland again the week after next. So it's an ongoing life's work project, really. Yeah. And it does seem like you've become an expert in this area that you didn't plan to become an expert in, which is what I always (laughs) think is very interesting. And is there anything that's surprised you as you've gone on this journey? Oh, I think, I mean, the world always seems a much bigger place than it does when you start out because there's so much yet to learn, but it also seems a little like a smaller place because people are just people no matter what their background and where they're from or what they're talking about and everyone sleeps and eats and loves and and feels and what's different is how we do this we may have culturally different ways of raising our children or working or eating but we all do these things so it's been quite humbling in that respect i think i was very taken and moved by the Brazilian and Portuguese concept of saudade, this idea of the melancholy of a happiness that once was and nostalgia, which seems counterintuitive, but actually we've all felt moments of 
bittersweet pleasure when you look through old photographs or, or think about old love letters or, or reminisce on times past. And this concept and the Brazilian idea especially seem to be about a sort of love letter to loss, a celebration of things that you hoped for that perhaps didn't turn out your way. And I'm careering towards middle age, so I'm very aware of mortality and, you know, the lives that we've chosen for ourselves. So that made a big difference to me, as did the the Japanese ideas around wabi-sabi, which is mm. um, the beauty of imperfection and transience. And I think in these times where we are faced with social media and rolling news and things can seem awful and we see images of perfection and are encouraged to aspire towards them, that felt like a really helpful thing personally for me to live by. And the more I speak to people and people often now use me as a sort of a bibliotherapy almost. They, they sort of ask, <laughs> which countries should I use today to make me feel a little bit better? And, and that's the one I find myself recommending quite a lot. I think it's, it's really helpful in terms of developing a sense of acceptance, in terms of appreciating the natural world and all its beauty, even when things don't work out our way. And also seeing that there is something to be celebrated about imperfection, that perfection is not going to happen. So we may as well be happy with what we have. And how has it changed you to obviously you changed your career. You're still mm -hmm. a journalist, but in a very different vein. But how has it changed you to really immerse yourself in all these different practices? I think, as I'm sure you find as well, there's knowing the things intellectually and then there's putting them into practice. So it's making the the reality match the rhetoric is an ongoing process, I think, for anyone who works in these fields. And all of the research that I have done and all of the knowledge that I have curated, I still have to remind myself, I still have days where I you know, might look at a picture and think, oh, I wish I looked like that. Or I've just had a picture out where I had to be in a magazine that's all around the world in a wetsuit standing next to a 25-year-old. That doesn't feel great. But, you know, I'm doing my best <laughs> to work my way through it. So I think it's really useful to have that information, to have these tools. And I think, as I said, people are asking me things. So it's nice to feel useful and it's nice to to feel like you have something to offer. And I feel that certainly now more in this job than I did in my previous job. And then personally as well, I was fortunate enough. So halfway through our first year of living Danishly, I found out that I was miraculously pregnant and I now have twins as wow. well. So <laughs> that's that really, really fantastic. turned around. Thank you. Yes. So yeah, as suddenly my life is very much a, about family in a way that I never expected. I, you know, when I moved to Denmark, I didn't think I would ever be able to have children. And so that has changed a lot for me. So yes, it's been good. Yeah. It seems like this has changed your whole life and the way you think and your career, obviously. And Obviously, it has the potential to do a lot for others as well. And and since it is this atlas, it is this compendium of so much great information. How do you envision people using it? I think there are some beautiful illustrations by Naomi Wilkinson in there as well. And I think it's one I certainly know that often life is so busy that the best you can do as you get into bed and you try and do the right thing for your mental well-being and you turn off your smartphone and then your head is just about to hit the pillow. And I think that I have hoped and I have heard from many readers that they are sort of beautiful bite-sized chapters that you get this lovely illustration and then you get to maybe read a chapter of inspiration and then drift off into your sleep. So I think it's a good nightstand book. I think I see a lot of people reading it on planes. So that's always lovely as well. I think there's something really inspirational about being in no man's land and being above the clouds and feeling as though everything is possible. 
And so that makes me very happy to see that it's read in that way. And then I just hear from people who've just taken sucker from it and from who people who think I hadn't thought about my own country in that way, or from people who say, I feel like I was born in this country, but actually I feel like I'm naturally more of a Canadian or more Russian or um, <laughs> more what have you. So that's been really interesting as well. That is super interesting. And what are you going to do now? Because obviously you can't stop now. Uh, <laughs> I'm now. No, well, I'm actually working on a new project that will be announced in March of 2020 and will come out in March 2021. I did a TED talk earlier this year, and that has generated a lot of new ideas, interest, and new avenues of research. So, yeah, I'm writing a book expanding on some of these ideas that to really be happy, we need to know how to be sad better as well. And so, oh, I like that. Embracing all of our emotions is my next cause. That is fantastic. Well, we are going to, when we come back, we're going to tell people how they can get a link to see your TED Talk so they can see what that's all about. We're going to tell them more about where they can get your book. Uh, But Helen, thank you for coming on. This is such an interesting book. It's a different take than we normally see uh, because we do get to travel the world through you and see all these different practices. It's really a fascinating approach and, and really we're very grateful that you sat down and wrote it. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for having me and for all the work you do as well. All right. Well, Helen, you have a wonderful day. And when you get the new project out, we'll have you back on and you can tell us about that. That sounds wonderful. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. That was Helen Russell, author of The Atlas of Happiness, The Global Secrets of How to Be Happy. If you'd like to learn more about Helen, her books, or how to follow her on social media, please visit us at livehappynow.com and we'll give you links and more information. We hope you're already a subscriber to Live Happy Now, but if you're not, you can find us on the Pandora Podcast Network, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play. Just look for us on your favorite platform and hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. That is all we have time for this week. We'll meet you back here again next week for an all new episode. And until then, this is Paula Phelps reminding you to make every day a happy one.